everybody, I'm the drunk phytologist, Dr. Rochelle Lapham, aka Phyto or DP, and I use the pronoun she, her. And I'm Ethan Lapham, uh, also known as Talkman363, and I use pronouns uh, he, him. And this is Natural 20. <laughs> Natural 20 is a podcast that discusses the lore, history, and biology of Dungeons and Dragons, creatures, and monsters. Natural 20 is also an adult podcast featuring adult language. You have been warned. Hey everybody, we're back. Round two. Round two. Electric bugaboo. Electric bugbears. <laughs> Electric bugbears. <laughs> yeah, we're totally not doing this the next night, no, because we got tired and we went to bed. <laughs> Goblin up two. Electric bugbear boo. Mm-hmm. That one's pretty good. I like that. All Little right. forced. <laughs> <laughs> Not my best work. Not my best work. <laughs> All right. Well, how about we start with? We said we we're going to start with hobgoblins this time, right? Yeah, I think we covered goblins pretty pretty distinctly. I think we got into an, an overview. An overview, and we talked a little bit about the crab problem. Yeah, well, um, well, and the, the bringing things back around. No. Just briefly, that <laughs> you're obsessed with this theory. It's a great theory. <laughs> that you know, with the sort of collective and, and ancient ancestor, you know, working down from goblins, then the the split, you know, into your hobgoblins and your bugbears and your humans. Yes. That there's a common ancestor and that goblins split from that. We didn't evolve from goblins. The goblins did their own thing. It's back to what we talked about a little bit last time where people are like, we evolved from apes. No, we did not. Apes did their own thing. We did our own thing. And so... We evolved from tiny rodents that survived the dinosaurs. Yes, if we go furthest back. Um, we, I, I was going with Homo erectus as our one, the latest common ancestor. But yes, if we want to get real into it, right, it's some tiny rodent that survived. At the end of the day, we're all rats. <laughs> it's just rats all the way down. Instead of crabs and, and now. those rats were once crabs. Crabs. Yeah, it's, it's always back to the crabs. The peak performance. Peak performance. Oh, gosh, dang it. All right, now, no one's ever going to forget convergent evolution ever again. Crab problem. Yep. <laughs> I refuse to call it anything else. I, I know. See, listeners, you don't know how long he's gone on about this. It's been two whole days in real time. Oh, I've been aware of the crab problem for years. I bring it up whenever I can. No, I'm talking about me suffering right now. Oh, yeah, the current <laughs> suffering. Yeah. Not, not the reoccurring suffering. So yeah, so so moving from goblins, which we I think we covered pretty pretty well last time. Mm-hmm. The next kind of big portion of the group is their closest relative, the hobgoblin. Hobgoblins go quite a ways back in D and D lore, and they come from folklore as these like more devious countryside spirits, and so they're they're seen as sort of the more intelligent cousins. It can be a bit. We're going to get into some biological things later with intelligence and stuff, but like, just bear with us for now. But in general, hobgoblins, bigger, very hierarchically organized military leaders in the goblin army, goblinoid grouping. You know, your goblins are your just shock and awe, front line. They're bringing forth animals and beasts. Hobgoblins would be more of like the organized phalanx and the... The squadron commander, they would be in charge of the goblins, typically. And so stat-wise, they that's represented, I think. They, they tend to be mm-hmm. larger, higher challenge rating. You tend to deal with a more tactical enemy. Yep. So if we look at the Monster Manual, 5th edition, right now, there are three different types. You have a regular old hobgoblin, you have stats for a hobgoblin captain, and you have a stats for a hobgoblin warlord. Again, sort of that hierarchy that you would maybe have a warlord and a couple of captains, and then, mm-hmm. you know, 10 or 15 hobgoblins. Right, so... And then a myriad of goblins under them, potentially. So your regular hobgoblin soldier, we'll say, has an armor class of 18. So they're using a chain mail, they're using shields, hit points of 11, speed of 30 feet. They've got plus ones to strength, to dex, to con, average intelligence, average wisdom, and a minus one to charisma. Dark vision... Speak, Common, and Goblin, they're a half-challenge rating. And they have something called Martial Advantage, which is that they can gain an extra 2d6 damage. 
to a creature that they hit within a weapon attack if it's within five feet of an ally of the hobgoblin that isn't incapacitated. So, so kind of a pack tactics. Tactics kind of idea. And but instead of advantage here, it's just bonus damage. And so in this case, they can also use, instead with our goblins, they were more smaller, simple weapons. Now we've moved on to like long swords and long bows. So this is a beefier, you know. Yeah, these are martial weapons. Like this yes. is a, a an organized military force. Your captains and your warlords, of course, have additional special abilities, additional hit points. Also, they've got multi-attacks. And also their intelligence goes up by quite a bit. Kind of makes sense. These are your ones in charge. Yeah, your leaders amongst goblins may well be the most conniving, the most, you know, the one that has survived the most battles, that's guard from wolf bites and, and sword blows. Your leaders amongst hobgoblins are the ones that are cunning and planning and the most... Organized and militant, clever. generally clever. Mm-hmm. So these would be, they would plan ambushes and they would set up an advance or a retreat. And that's something that kind of a teaser for using your game. Hobgoblins would be willing to step back. If they're outgunned, outnumbered, they will very likely fall back to a more defensible position. Yep. However, it does say within the lore, besides them being strategic thinkers and also have to do with conquer, they also love battle. But they don't take up arms lightly. They are planners. They're strategists. But in this lore here, it's very, um, it reminds me of Norse mythology quite a bit. In that they're, can you say that word for me? Uh, Meglubiet? Yes. Yes. That's the overarching goblinoid deity. Yes. They worship this sort of greater god or like the mighty one. But they believe that when they die in battle that they're going to be in the honored ranks of the Glubiet army. Kind of reminds me of Valhalla. Sure, that you have these warriors' halls. Yes. Freya has her own, Odin has his own, and that, you know, in the days of Ragnarok, they will fight at their side. Mm-hmm. You know, and those that, that don't go to either of the feasting halls have their own sort of afterlife, but it is not nearly as honorable. And so that's something that you can even leverage, too within your games to make it more interesting because there's plenty of times where it's like I could see people like throwing goblins at it and throw a hobgoblin in there or whatever but it's like no like this is like this is a whole culture and you know being if you're a Star Trek fan like we are the hobgoblins are kind of your Klingons Stovokor awaits them mm-hmm. and so yeah they may have similar traditions and, and the artwork kind of lends itself to that that it is the so much in the way that you know the Klingons took interest from kind of Japanese, you know, layer, leathered layer armor, you know, mm-hmm. samurai armor. A lot of the hobgoblin art that you see kind of follows that same Absolutely. pattern. And so you're seeing again organized military honoring their forebears in combat. This is not going to be the pointed sticks. Nope. And, and no pointed you know, sticks. Rough nails through. Mm-hmm stakes to make you know simple fight clubs and things like that like Mm -hmm. this is a military force yep a lot of what they work on is sort of conquer and control this and so this almost lends itself to the dakani empire and eberron absolutely the eberron side of so yeah your your faerun it's like they're just you know sort of these militant raiders in the woods sort of situation but yeah in eberron with the continent spanning dakani empire Mm -hmm. the hobgoblins were the the planners and the orchestrators and, again, you had a continent-spanning empire. You don't do that on, like, whoever fights good leads. It is who plans well, who organizes. There are logistical concerns. So there would likely be hobgoblin record keepers and hobgoblin quartermasters. Maybe you run into that. Maybe that's a situation you find yourself in, you know, if you're behind enemy lines in a, in a goblinoid encampment. You may not be dealing with frontline soldiers. These may be equivalent of civilians. Because there would still be an organized society behind that. There has to be, like, mm-hmm. by, by nature of what you're dealing with. So, yeah, the Dakani Empire was, was huge. And Corvair, the main continent, is thousands of miles across. It is a massive, massive continent. So having a single empire in a feudal era of technology, that's going to be difficult. You know, you're talking like Alexander the Great, the golden hordes of Asia. There were massive empires, the Persian Empire. There are examples of this. And yes, great military powers, but also usually fantastic civic empires. 
Yes. They had to have messaging systems. They had to have... Archivists, yeah. artisans. So there would be the horse master of the hobgoblins. Philosophers, which were the equivalent of scientists, naturalists, doctors. Poets. You know, poets. There, are, there have to be hobgoblin poets. You can't tell me they're wrong. Shakespeare and the original hobgoblin, I'm sure, is phenomenal. There's another Star Trek reference for you. <laughs> Do we want to go talk about bugbears now a little bit? Sure, yeah. Let's mm-hmm. jump over to kind of the other side of the coin. Bugbears, and we mentioned this, I think, a little bit in the first half of the episode, is that in first edition, they even call out, like, sub-groupings that, like, the women and children fight as hobgoblins or kobolds to, to borrow their stats. That, you know, we're not going to reprint the stat block again when you can just refer to a page, right. you know, whatever. Flip in your three-ring binder in those days. So I forgot to ask, have the hobgoblins changed much since first edition? In a general sense, no. They've been pretty consistent. Artwork-wise, yeah, there's definitely been some, shall we say, upgrades. They definitely were a little bit more cobbled together in prior editions. And so the, they've, they've definitely played them up as the more organized group amongst goblinoids. Goblins are the sort of neutral, every goblin for themselves kind of organization. The lawful piece is your hobgoblin. You know, they're the planners. Bugbears are the chaos element. They're the muscle. And that's how they're often seen, but it's very interesting that you mention that because in a lore sense, they just sort of keep to themselves and they will do anything they can to avoid work. <laughs> they avoid combat. Like There's mention in Volo's Guide and even back into like some of the first edition Monster Manual that it's like there's these tales of being like grabbed by bugbears in the woods. But if you read through a lot of the lore, it's like, not really. Like You've got to kind of coax them into combat now yes once there they are fierce fighters they have exceptionally long arms so they gain reach on their opponents with, with you know your standard old melee weapon five foot not bugbears it's 10 feet it's a 10 foot reach weapon now it's 15 for their size they have an incredible threat range mm-hmm. they're big they're beefy so let's go into their stats naturally they have armor class of 16 27 hit points speed 30 feet Plus two to strength, plus two to dex, plus one to con, minus one to intelligence, average wisdom, zero, minus one to charisma. Although for something this big, plus six to stealth. They are very stealthy. Plus two to survival, dark vision, common and goblin, challenge rating of one now. So, so we've gone up. up a quarter, a half, one. Now That's they... per. So again, if you have six or seven of them, that's a much higher challenge. Now, they have a surprise attack, which is if they surprise a creature. So there's their stealth in there. The attack they hit with the first round of combat deals an extra 2d6, similar to kind of what the hobgoblins did, instead of it being kind of pack tactics. This is ambush. And And bugbears are all about ambush. And there's brute, right, which is a melee weapon deals an extra die of its damage when the bugbear hits with it. So, up close and personal. So they hit very hard. And the thing is, those stack. So in a surprise round, that's an extra damage die plus 2d6. Yep. And then if you critical that hit, it doubles all of those dice. Mm -hmm. So you are talking a very severe hit, and that is their thing. Morningstar and Javelin are examples. There can be a bugbear chief, which Mm -hmm. is you get a bit more hit points, a little bit more armor class, and their wisdom goes up. Now, instead, they have advantage on saving throws against being charmed, frightened, paralyzed, poisoned, stunned, or put to sleep. So crowd control is very difficult. Multi-attack. So the thing with bugbears is the Morningstar is their deific symbol so where the goblins it was the whip with bugbears it's the morning star frugak their deity that's why they all carry morning stars and they tend not to want to use ranged weapons they will not use bows they will not use slings they don't like them should we describe for the listeners what a morning star looks like so a morning star is you know when you think of so a lot of people think of a mace, they think of this big ball with all these spikes on it. That's a morning star. A mace is just a like round, blunt instrument. So you take a club that is this big, long stick that you hit things with, put all of the mass in one end, and put a handle on it. That's a mace. It's the advanced version of the club. 
you were concentrating your force in a single area. Club 2.0. To make it even more nasty, you cover it in spikes. So this can be made of wood. It can be made of iron. It can be made of obsidian. If you think about you know the, the club or the morning star in certain earth cultures, you know the equivalent is a long, you know, decently long, probably two to two and a half feet, but it could be covered at the end could be covered in shark's teeth, shards of obsidian, sharpened, you know, flints. It can be anything that is locally sharp. And so yeah, and then you have your flail, which is sort of the, the advanced version then again. Take the, the spiky end ball, and flails again don't have to be spiky either. They often are because, hey, why not? You got the opportunity. But they don't have to be. But you take that mass, and now you put it on a, on a chain. So you extend your reach, extend your range, and now when you can spin it up and whirl it, you can increase the kinetic energy, increase the damage it can do. And those are hard to control because they're usually very heavy, but you stand the chance of shattering armor, breaking shields, damaging limbs breaking behind your bones. armor. Right. Mm. You know, a shield will deflect a sword. If it takes a direct flail hit, odds are good you can damage the arm behind it without a lot of padding. And so that's the thing is that, you know, if you're up against a force that you know has flails or morning stars, mm-hmm. you're going to pad your shields, which makes them much more awkward to leverage. If you want to get real deep into to combat, if you're a combat nerd, take it to the extreme. But yeah, the morning star is the bugbear weapon of choice. They all, almost all of them use it. Although... They call out specifically with the stealth. For a creature as large as they are, they're usually between 6 and 8 feet high and somewhere between 250 and 450 pounds. And they are extremely stealthy. Primarily because they're lazy. (laughs) Um, Work smarter, not harder. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, so they're often, you know, bribed by hobgoblins with things like food and gold and weapons. And sometimes that's not enough. But in combat, they are, again, it's that ferocious strength but they always try to use it to their greatest advantage from a stealth position. They're very quiet, they move quickly and silently, and they strike whenever they can from a position of advantage. And they also believe that if they die in battle, if they show themselves the fiercest warrior, that their spirit will leave and that they will also get a chance to fight alongside their god in some sort of great war. They also, so they have three entities that besides Maglubiet. They have three entities that they are, you know, worshippers of. Frugek is kind of the main one who's like their berserker combat god. But they also, war. Yeah, but they also have, I, I will have to find the, the name again. But their, their second is the watcher god. So while their main combat at Frugek is sleeping, their other god is watching over him. Is constantly alert and awake and like cursed to be awake, basically. Grankul. So Grankul is their, their secondary, and he watches over Hrugek while he sleeps. Part of that worship, and the reason I bring this up, is that they will, if they defeat like a large group, they will take the head of their leader and either sew open or remove its eyelids and put it on a stake. Well, that's lovely. And they believe that this is... It's like a shamanic thing of, like, shrunken heads, same sort of mm -hmm, idea. mm -hmm. They cut away the eyelids so that it is always watching so that it can guide them and give them alarm when something comes to attack them. And it does sometimes work. Okay. So there are instances where There's nightmare fuel, everybody. (laughs) Will have one of their heads shout like an alarm spell or occasionally babble secrets that it knew. I speak with dead spell. Hey, everybody, you want to work that into your game in a goblin encampment? Here we go. Mm-hmm. Specifically bugbears. Specifically bugbears. Volo's got great for goblinoids as far as, like, lore. If you want to really have a rich, deep goblinoid encounter, tons of material in here. Highly recommend it. There's some problems. We'll get to those. But as far as the lore goes, fantastic to freak your players out. They do have a third entity that they whisper of worship, it is sort of Ooh. their evil, which is Skirgaret, which is basically their god of fear, and they hate being fearful of things. Well, especially because everything about this is sort of combat and glory and bravery and... So it fierce. says, Skirgaret's influence manifests at times when bugbears are forced to act in a cowardly fashion. A bugbear that knows or feels itself to be in mortal danger is affected by a form of madness, 
and will do anything, including trying to flee, in order to stay alive. They believe that this feeling of fear comes from being possessed by Skigaret, and they do not relish experiencing it. After madness has passed, they do not dwell on these things, and talk about such acts may bring him back. So it's like, if they act cowardly, they will not talk about it. For fear that it'll happen again. So, yeah, that's where the, the Morningstar is specific, and, and Javelins, and some will carry garotes. Again, these are the assassins. Mm-hmm. You don't think of eight-foot-tall, 500-pound assassins. But in D&D, you'd better. <laughs> because they're out there. Because they're out there. Likely asleep. <laughs> but they will wake up. As I said, work smarter, not harder. I'm okay with this. I'm behind this. I'm behind this philosophy. This makes sense to me. I'm on board with the, the bugbear idea of why do anything other than sleep and lay around and have a good time until you need to work. And then when you do work, make sure that you hit things once and then it doesn't get up again. This is just efficient. I'm behind this strategy. Because mm-hmm. why would you not go for the sneaky... Surprise attack and, and brutish strength put everything into just one massive blow and make sure that whatever you hit doesn't get up again. Don't skip arm day. No, never skip arm day. I don't think they can skip any day. If they weigh 500 pounds, every day is workout day. Especially if you're carrying around some of those weapons that you mentioned. Yeah, big morning stars, multiple javelins. You weigh 500 pounds and you're bipedal and weigh 500 pounds. As far as, as bipedal creatures go, most of them on Earth are not that heavy. No. There are very few. On top of being that strong, their arms are long, so there's more kinetic energy behind the blow, hence the brute. Yep. Welcome the, to physics, everybody. Biomechanics says they have to be that strong. They yes. have to hit that hard. They could half, just half-ass the swing, and it's still going to hurt. If they tried to check the swing, it'd probably do normal damage. Which is still, like, 2d6. Morningstars right. are nasty. Mm-hmm. No wonder that it's like, okay, we're going to hit something real hard. Send bugbears at it mm-hmm. once you get them to actually go. The hard part's getting them to go. Once mm-hmm. they're there, they will take care of the problem. They are the shock troops mm-hmm. of, a, of a goblinoid uh, encampment. So now we hinted to it in the first episode a little bit. And now we need to probably talk about it a little bit more on the problems with evil, quote-unquote, humanoid races. This has been a thing basically as long as D&D or really any sort of fantasy story has existed. That there's there's often a force of good and a force of evil, and the force of evil tends to be real repetitive. And when you need a big evil army and you don't want to go undead, your next best option is some other intelligent group that is working for the evil guy. If it's your stormtroopers, if it's your goblins, if it's your savages that you've raised up in barbaric tribes, whoever it may be. The other. Yeah, the other. This evil horde, whatever it is made up of, inherently everyone in it is evil. There's no shades of gray. The forces of good must triumph over this massive evil army and overcome all odds. It's a good story. It tugs at some deep part of our psyche that says, you know, the noble, good heroes overcome all odds and beat back the the evil, whatever the evil may be. It's for our innate desire to have control and simplicity in a world which is... Very much not. Endlessly complicated and chaos. Let's just be real. (laughs) So, yes, it makes a clean, simple story to say, these are the heroes, everything they fight is evil. It's an easy story. Yes. I wouldn't say it's always a good story. It can be. I mean, there's plenty of great, you know, heroic epics. You know, some of our favorite media, you know, in modern times, it's it's comic book movies. But, you know, Star Wars, great example. All these, you know, stormtroopers. One can't hit the broadside of a barn because of plot armor. And two, you know, here's this ragtag group of nobody farmer kids from backwater planets overcoming this massive evil empire okay expanded universe nerds will know more than i will that's just that's how it's gonna be i've read enough wikipedia that (laughs) i have to wear glasses now you had to wear glasses before (laughs) but the fact of the matter is i will never know everything there is to know about star wars and i'm sure there's some 
unique special group of stormtroopers that fought the Empire from within. Eh. Stormtroopers bad. Luke, Leia, Han, good. I'm, I'm picking that set of movies. We're not touching the rest of them. Too divisive. <laughs> Point being. You can't tell me that, you know, Dave down in Sector 433B was super evil. Dave probably just wanted to mop the floor, get paid, and go home. Yep. That's the the grand plan of any empire. Someone has to clean the toilets. Someone has to take out the trash. Are they evil? No. The people they work for evil? Yeah, probably. They're blowing up planets and oppressing people. It's pretty bad. But the Daves and the Steves and the Jim Bobs, they're not evil. They're just getting paid and going home. Mm-hmm. And that was their best opportunity to get paid and not get shot by the evil people. So how are they all evil? These are unique individuals. Hell, the vast majority of them probably aren't evil. They're just trying to get paid and not die. So then we've got to talk about the differences that we've noticed between... So, yeah, going back a long ways. ways. Goblins are evil. All goblins are all evil. Tooth-gnashing, wolf-riding, sword-wielding evil. Because it makes for an easy thought process to just, what do I throw at these low-level players? Goblins? Hmm, they've gotten a little stronger. Hobgoblins? Gotten a little stronger. Bugbears? They've gotten a little stronger. All three? It's easy. It's plug-and-play, and there's nothing wrong with that. They're solidly built. They've lasted the test of time all the way back to first edition. They are functional combatants. They make a good encounter. Play with the tools that you have available. At the end of the day, we haven't gotten rid of screwdrivers. They still serve a purpose. Are they the most talked-about tool in the toolbox? No. But practically every human on Earth that uses any sort of modern tool probably has used or owns a screwdriver. Every DM out there and every player out there has in some way or shape or form probably dealt with a goblin. It just is. And it's true in a lot of media. It's in video games, any fantasy video games. There are goblins. And they're always evil in some way. Or even if they're not directly evil. They're always this, like, other, you know, they're the weird inventors and everything explodes. And they're a source of comedy. But it's painting with a broad brush and that introduces a lot of problems. Because how, again, how do you take an entire collective group society of intelligent beings and say that they are all one thing? Now granted, societally they may lean towards chaos. Or they may lean towards law. Or they may be, you know, inherently evil from a human-centric point of view. Maybe to them... Murder is not inherently a problem. It's thinning the herd of the weak. And you talk, we were talking about this the other day with C.J. Cherry's books. hmm And you were saying in the Foreigner series... Yes. Right, ...that the alien race that humans interact with... Their thought processes and their society are vastly different yeah, than humans expect. to them, assassination is completely normal. Right. It's a simple way to deal with a problem. Instead of open warfare that may destroy infrastructure, damage towns, shatter relationships, in a culture that doesn't have nations or states, it has loose associations of individual people. And these are called the Atevi, right? The Atevi. And this is one of C.J. Cherry's works. If you are at all interested in anthropological science fiction, fantastic author. But in this society, they see an assassination as surgical, as efficient. It is what they term finesse, that you finesse a situation. If you remove a single individual problem, it will cause a shakedown in all the relationships around it and potentially solves your issue. It is a last recourse, but it is a legal action. So prior to that, you may go through some type of arbitration. Arbitration that's handled by the Assassin's Guild. Humans see that and go, oh my god, they're killing people in the streets. This makes no sense. Well, one, they likely wouldn't kill people in the streets. It would be done in the dark of night. And it would be handled quickly, quietly, efficiently with finesse. But it's still horrifying to human sensibilities. This is judge, jury, and executioner all in one. It's all the Assassin's Guild. They are the legal body. They have a a Congress and, and Senate sort of equivalent. But they have assassins that are their bodyguards that are around them all the time. So this is something that you can think about when you are dealing with some of these other different types of humanoid races in your game. Orcs, elves, dwarves, Dwarves. goblins. Is the 
Do they have the same sensibilities as... Is their moral code the same, same as, as ours? As ours. Because as players. Because we have a single human viewpoint. Again, that's painting with a broad brush, I agree. And that you know, all humanity is the same. No, we each have our own moral sensibilities. But you know, most of us agree murder is bad. Starvation is a horrible torture tactic. You know, you don't chop off fingers to get information. Like, it's unless that's the campaign you're playing... That you are playing truly evil characters and it's a grim, dark game? Yeah, maybe lean into those things. But then can you really look on a society that is considered brutal and quote-unquote evil as evil to your characters? Maybe they see it as the right way and the way things should be. And so we can talk about the differences when you're talking about in Volos versus Eberron. So in Volos Guide and in a lot of previous material... Your goblinoid races, goblins, hobgoblins, bugbears, are all listed as evil. Across the board. All of them. They are just innately evil. It is part of their culture. Part of who they are as a race. Even the player races presented in Volo's Guide are listed as evil. Every one of them. So it's listed out. Bugbear traits. You know, you got your ability score increases, your ages, your size, speed... They have dark vision, they have long-limbed reach, they have powerful builds so that they count as one size larger, proficient in the stealth kill, they get the surprise attack that they had from the monster manual entry, and they, you know, speak, read, write, common, and goblin. But for alignment, it says that they endure harsh existence, demands them to remain self-sufficient, and that at the, even at the expense of their fellows, and they tend towards chaotic evil. For goblins, they are typically neutral evil as they care only for their own needs. A few goblins might tend towards good or neutrality, but only rarely. They at least try and kind of hedge their bets on that one. And then Hobgoblin society is built on a fidelity to rigid, unforgiving code of conduct. As such, they tend towards lawful evil. Now, these are all from Volo's Guide from 2016. So, first printing. May have been corrected since. I haven't checked a newer printing or, say, D&D Beyond. But Volo's Guide, as it stood in 2016, all three entries list evil as part of the entry. Now, you come to 2019, and you look at Eberron, which has... The exact same player statistics. They add some modifications for size so you can roll your size and then things like that that are a little bit more open-ended like some of the other races. It's a good addition and adds some randomness if you can't decide how tall you want a character to be, roll some dice. Great. You know, or, or how heavy they should be. Otherwise, they're more or less the same with some Eberron-specific items. So things like mentioning the Dakan Empire or Dargoon, which is one of the cities. There's some Eberron-specific things in the flavor text. But overall, you know, the alignment, ability score increases are the same, the speed's the same, there's still the dark vision, still long-limbed, all the same features for bugbears. Um, you know, goblins get Fury of the Small and Nimble Escape. Hobgoblins get their martial training, so they're proficient with two martial weapons and light armor. And they have an ability to boost their damage, their attack rolls or ability checks by the number of allies they can see within 30 feet once per rest, short or long, which is called saving face. Again, going back to they have a very rigid, coded society. All of those things exist in both Volo's Guide and the Eberron Rising from the Last War. However, the alignment entries differ. So where before, Bugbear was listed as self-sufficient and they tend to be chaotic evil, it now is that Bugbears live on fringes of society, even in Dargoon, there's that Eberron specific, where they value self-sufficiency and violence. They are, so that's more or less the same, minus some flavor. However, they are generally chaotic, organizing loose tribes under charismatic and powerful leaders. No mention good or evil. Chaotic, yes. And certainly, they are loose affiliates, small family unit gatherings. They generally are not this big military force. So they're likely going to be chaotic in the sense that there really isn't a code. It's kind of catch-as-catch-can, work when you have to. That fits chaotic. They'll deal with the military presence of hobgoblins when they have to, but they don't really want to. Now, But um, it's not evil. I'm going to make a little addendum in here just because you were talking about chaotic. In the Adventure Zone, they had an instance of, instead of bugbears, they were hugbears. Okay. Which are bugbears that have been reconditioned. All right. Be, yep, some I'm, trouble in that term, know, too, but all right. Some trouble in that term. The idea was is that they had undergone therapy mm-hmm. and were now good. Yeah, they, they, had, right? they had dealt with their evil ways. Sure. Right. And I don't think I'm saying this 
completely correctly and someone could probably correct me as well. I think it also may have been due, there was either medicine or a spell or some hand-wavy argument, Griffin uh, McElroy. Hand-wavium. Hand-wavium, Griffin McElroy. Because Clark from The Lost Mine became a hugbear. Okay. And a reoccurring NPC that everybody loved. Still somewhat chaotic, but helpful. Chaotic helpful. And I had made a joke with some of our friends the other day that I have the power of chaotic hug. Right? Sure. And so, because if we're going to have special attack hug now, right? From instead, the owlbears, yeah. <laughs> from the owlbears. Now you have your chaotic bugbear. They could have the special attack chaotic hug. There's no reason you can't. <laughs> so that's the thing, is it's, you, you've removed evil from the equation. Before, goblins, neutral evil. Well, here, it's in Eberron, goblins are usually neutral. They tend to look out for themselves, preferably without drawing unwanted attention from any larger, more powerful people. So they're neutral. They're not going to be causing all sorts of, of ruckus, although they could. And they will generally try and kind of toe the line, primarily to stay out of unwanted attention. Hence, neutral. Not evil, just neutral. Now again, you could literally just take out the words in Eberron. So it's just, goblins are usually neutral. Now it works everywhere. Every other statistic is the same. Every other ability is the same. Just taking out that evil piece. The same is true with hobgoblins. So hobgoblin society in Eberron is shaped by the ideal of a strict code of honor and rigid martial discipline. Most hobgoblins are lawful, tending towards harsh enforcement of their laws. So you could say that it might be borderline evil, maybe lawful neutral. But again, there's nothing saying these are evil races. They are exceedingly strict in how they enforce their way of life. That they are strict adherence to law, or that they are constantly, whatever they're doing, be it adhering to code, or sneaking off and going AWOL, just trying to avoid attention and thereby neutral. Or they're just chaos incarnate. There is no controlling them. They will do what they will, and you just sort of point them in a direction and hope for the best. There's no reason you have to attach evil to it. There's no reason that our, our Neanderthal bugbear has to be inherently evil because they are the other. Or stupid. Or stupid. It is not... Yes, okay. Their statistics in the Monster Manual list them as having, you know, below average... Average, you know, average, average wisdom, below average intelligence. Or average intelligence. But there's no reason for that at all. Because even if we go back into human evolutionary history, there was a thought just from... There's kind of an estimate on intelligence, and I'll say that loosely, on the size of the brain. The larger your cranium, the larger your brain, the tend to be, the smarter you are, just in general, when it comes to body size. Neanderthals and human skulls are not that different. They basically are equivalent. And the Homo heidelbergus, similar. Homo erectus had a smaller cranial size. So as time went on, as evolutionary time went on, our brains got bigger. So and they have the folds that help have more connective pathway, pathways, more surface area. Yes. They're not a koala. They're not a koala. So smooth brain. Smooth brain. The bumpy brain, the, the many folds, the wrinkly brain, is associated with being able to do higher, more complicated thought processes with the additional folds and syn synapses. If you have a smooth brain, you don't have the folds part. You that don't means have the thinky thinky You parts. have not evolved the thinky thinky parts. Um, Z Frank one on YouTube. Z Frank, tons of true facts videos. There's a good amount of actual scientific knowledge there packed in with a lot of humor. Yes, and it is very funny. The marsupials episode, he talks about that koalas do not have the folded brain structure. They have relatively smooth brains. Which means that they have not evolved the thinky-thinky parts. And if you have studied or looked into koalas at all, this is very true. If you remove their food, eucalyptus, from trees, take the leaves, put it on a plate, they will not eat it. They don't know what to do with it. Yep. They will starve. But if you take the branch and you put it inside a PVC tube and screw that PVC tube to a tree, now they think it's a branch, they'll eat it. Exact same branch. No difference. Because they expect trees. Yes. They are hard-coded, instinctively driven animals. Yes. There is, a, there, is no, there, is no, there is no logic in this place. No. It, is, it is all purely on emotion and instinct. It, back to the, back Sorry, to the, a, the side diatribe the, there. But side diatribe. Back it's important to, to note that you know you could have the same size cranium, but if the brain shape is different, right. you may have different 
right. thought processes and different level, level of intelligence. Of intelligence, right. That's the closest thing biologically that we can come up with that has any standing towards more or less intelligence. Wrinkly brain, smooth brain. Yes. And, you know, and, generally overall bigger. Yeah, yeah, in general overall size, right. But at least when it comes to humanoids... There was a thought, oh, well, maybe Homo sapiens were a lot more intelligent and that was the reason. Well, we found plenty of archaeological evidence that all of these different species had their own art, had their own tools. Worked together, which worked together provide some form of communication. communication. There's no evidence that Homo sapiens were much smarter than any of these other. We just ended up being more prevalent. Even though, as a species, we are very young in comparison to other species... Because we only evolved about 200,000 years ago, which most other things were millions of right. years. We are we're relatively new kids on the block when it comes to this sort of deep time. But we honestly don't know. A lot of this is supposition and ideas. And we may be here as a product of dumb luck. Yes. There's sometimes a lot of that, too. And so when it comes to intelligence, and we were thinking about this and then some of the other races and different problems that have been brought up where it's like, oh, if you want to play this race, you take like a minus whatever to intelligence, is that at least in the real world, amongst different populations of humans, there is no evidence whatsoever that intelligence is linked with race. Period, exclamation point. Anyone who says otherwise is a scumbag. They're promoting old, bad stereotypes. Yes. The history of biology and genetics, and especially genetics and human studies, is ugly. I am not going to tell anyone otherwise. Exceptionally so. Exceptionally so, and a lot of it had to do with either literally trying to prove and justify terrible stereotypes and racism and oppression. Race science is the term. Intelligence is what we call a quantitative trait. So quantitative trait means that there are many genes and many different factors that contribute to making something. The most that we can find, at least intelligence-wise, there is a small part that is determined by your genetics. If you have a family tends to have a higher intelligence, your kids will tend to be more intelligent. However, that's still not very clear it's somewhat muddy because it's back to the the old nature, nature versus, versus nurture. nurture and we found it's more nurture than anything a lot of intelligence at least seems to be linked to nutrition seems to be linked to being able to have time having a stable family unit early in life with low stress having resources for learning and opportunities for learning support system and some of this is now it would probably fall into a very new branch of science which is epigenetics yes and looking at the impact of environmental factors on our you know body's capabilities to change yes and so epigenetics if we want to get is literally above genetics and epigenetics has to do with gene expression not so much the gene itself. It's, it's how often that gene is referenced to make proteins to create right. so further processes. Let's back up a little bit because we talk about this all the time. Everyone, imagine that your genome is the Encyclopedia Britannica. Or Wikipedia for those that don't remember selling 30-volume encyclopedias. Okay, or actual physical books. I know. I, we still have physical books in our home. like the like, Don't have like, Encyclopedia Britannica. No, we don't. Don't want one. They're basically useless the moment they're printed. We, we use paper here and, and pen. Like, like the archaic humans we are. I play D&D with pen and paper, but those don't tend to change nearly as often. Anyway, Wikipedia. Wikipedia has a huge amount. So imagine your genome, right? Or just a library. Just let me do my analogy. Shut up for a second and let me finish it. <laughs> Never. So your genome was going with Wikipedia now, damn it. All right. Your genome is Wikipedia, all your genetic material, all of Wikipedia for you. But you only want to know, want to know how to make cake. There are proteins in your genome which go and find the area of your genome that says this is how to make cake. These proteins will read a specific area of like, okay, I want to make chocolate cake, a particular kind. You will then, say in the Wikipedia idea, go and find the article for chocolate cake. That article you can copy to your computer. That copy is now RNA, is what we go. So we started with DNA, is our genetic material. 
Now the copy that we've made of that genetic material is RNA, like a message. We have brought the recipe. We now have this recipe that goes, and so we're referring to what's called the central dogma. We start with DNA, we go to RNA, and then we become protein. That RNA, or that recipe for chocolate cake, you read that recipe, you take ingredients, and you translate the information in that recipe from a piece of paper or a file on your computer into chocolate cake. In this case, you are acting as the ribosome. The ribosome is a small molecular machine that reads RNA, or the recipe, and translates that information into protein, in this case, chocolate cake. Now, epigenetics. Epigenetics is those proteins which go to find chocolate cake originally. And where is it in the genome? And how do I find it? And what do I copy? Now, there can be different markers within your genome because you have many different cells in your body. Even though you have the entirety of Wikipedia in every single cell, you don't need to read the entirety of Wikipedia every single cell because you are only a cell that makes chocolate cake or you are only a cell that makes savory foods <laughs> if we want to go with the food method. Or maybe you're a cell that's really into flags. Epigenetic markers basically are there are markers where you don't even read that part of Wikipedia. You can't even see that part of Wikipedia. Only this part of Wikipedia is available for you. You have bookmarks. You get to the sections you want fast. Yes. And you ignore everything else. Exactly. What can happen is that there can be differences amongst people due to different bookmarks and their genetic code itself can be the same. But epigenetically, you can only read certain parts and not other ones. Certain things are bookmarked, certain things are favorited, and certain things are not. If you can look at, and they have did this study with twins, identical mm -hmm. twins, in humans and a variety of other animals, and found that even... <laughs> you, sorry, everyone. Our, 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 old, our oldest kitty really, really wants to be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he has been fighting for attention for the last 10 minutes. They did this study with identical twins and found that even though they have the exact same genetics, absolutely identical, one would get cancer and one wouldn't. One would get diabetes and one wouldn't. Same house, same overall house, the same nutrition. Overall same everything, and it had to do with these epigenetic marks. It's, it's where were the, the ruts in the road for that particular individual's right. genetic code. And we're finding that epigenetics itself played in these bookmarks. And if the bookmarks are read correctly, made correctly, found correctly, have a lot to do with modern day diseases that we didn't quite understand before. They're even finding that there can be, like your risk for obesity could have to do with how much stress your mom was under when she was pregnant for you. Because those bookmarks and patterns and stuff can be changed even in utero before you're born and have a large impact. And so, and we are just barely, barely, barely scratching the surface of this stuff. And the, so bringing it back around, the reason we, we got to epigenetics is the thought that, yes, you could be genetically predisposed to being a hyper-intelligent being. But if your environment is basically non-stimulating, it may never develop. Because the, the genetic code that would trigger being super, super smart is not bookmarked. The propensity towards one particular thing or being associated with one particular phenotypic outcome does not necessarily mean that even within the same population you're going to have the same outcomes, just based on what is occurring around that individual. And what we mean by phenotype is how something looks or presents itself, some observable sort of trait. Genotype is... We're the taking gene. you all back to high school biology here. Yep, and then genotype is what's associated with the genes, that variation itself. Again, back to high school biology, the classic example, Mendelian genetics, Punnett squares, pea plants. White versus purple, whether, you know, you might have two that have the exact same genetic code, and if you breed them together, half of their progeny comes out white, half of it comes out purple, and you're going, where did this come from? Well, because of how it shook out, the phenotype may have been white, but it had the genes necessary to produce purple offspring. That isn't quite right, but that's just because I have all of this memorized because I'm a nerd. <laughs> no, and because you had to. 
to get, I also have kind a of need I that. also have a degree in genetics, so that might have something to do with it. I fix computers. I fix computers. But I play a lot of D and D. Anyway, what we're saying is, is that when it comes to intelligence, even in modern day humans, even in our different humanoid races, there should be no link of intelligence to race. There can be societal differences, there can be cultural differences, there can be moral and social differences, different moral coding. At least I would encourage you in your games, if you're trying to have these different quote-unquote evil races, that to make them more interesting, to make them more compelling. They're not all dumb brutes. brutes. They just aren't. Some of them may be conniving. Many of them may not be evil at all. They may appear evil on a surface, but it turns out they have deep motives. There's areas for gray mm-hmm. in their you know, morality. They may be bloodthirsty savages to the local village, but it turns out that they've been, that there's a catastrophe behind them, and this is their last chance for the survival of their tribe. And so they turn to the things that they find normal and acceptable, which are barbaric to the local human population. Well, granted, their actions may be considered evil by heroic players and by the local town. But are they evil? No, they're trying to survive. And they are using their tools the best they know how. So remove that from it. And there's a a push, I know, to kind of remove the idea of race. Really, it's more species. When we refer to race in D&D, it's species. Change the term, and it it takes away some of the the negative connotations to the, the, the terms. But it's the term that we have. And you think about that it's, oh, well, this particular species, this particular race gets a a bonus to intelligence. Like we said, there's nothing genetic to intelligence. But perhaps this this group, this species, tends towards more book learning and and rigorous study. More scholarly pursuits. They spend time knowing their history. Or perhaps they're more charismatic. Well, it may be that their features are more interesting if you look at a surface level, that they are an exotic look. And so that lends them an extra Mm. capability to you know for to interact with other races and it may be that they just are a very social race i wouldn't go there I exceptionally wouldn't go... Commu- sure but again that's where some of it comes from because that that goes back to the why are elves so charismatic well they're right. they're pretty and they, they yes look exactly because that goes back to like the comeliness sort of which stat. that gets into a dark area of tabletop top RPGs. rpgs that is a stat in some systems yes don't go there Tis a, tis a silly place. So that's why when you're like, oh, well, how they look, I'm like, mm, I would say more of the, it's a social race. They're right? very communicative. Very communicative. You know, like... They often they, are telling stories and right. they pass their history not through book learning, but through oratory, through poems, through heroic tales. So that boosts their charisma because they're fast talkers. Or they may be, you know, and charisma can also be someone who is physically imposing. So you may have a race that, or a species that doesn't play to your common... Maybe they aren't a big talker, but they're big scary. Mm-hmm. Which is a character I, you know, was a nickname for a character I played. Had high charisma, but it was all put into intimidation and persuasion through being this quiet, immovable object. So look to, you know, those reasons. Are they more dexterous? Well, it's because they have fine bone and you know, hands and great motor control. And we were talking about that in our last episode with the Homo luzonensis, which was a smaller humanoid that was found on the island of Luzon that were thought that they were really good climbers because they had these longer, more dexterous fingers and toes and stuff. And, and we so, can see, and, so, and, and this is a, an important point to bring up when it comes to skeletal structure, Mm-hmm. That yes, we can see a curved bone and say, yeah, it has this purpose. But on top of just looking at what the bone is and where it's placed, you can see the, the points where muscle attaches to bone because of how bones are shaped. Mm-hmm. So we can see where they may have had additional ligaments and tendons or that they were placed in a different position to allow for improved mobility right. or improved motor control. We can see these things despite the lack of muscles being present. Muscles mm-hmm. break down in a fossil record. But we can see how they attached to help determine perhaps improved strength or a different function or a different placement of particular muscles. Well, and also, even in bones themselves, you can find evidence for, and there's a lot of study being going on, on seeing that if an individual had any particular diseases or if they had breaks or injuries over their life. And so if you want to learn a little bit more like that, if you're somewhat of more of these morbid curiosity types, 
Allie Ward and Ologies did a great episode with, uh, and I cannot remember the gentleman's name and I feel terrible, but it had to do with the body farm. We'll fix it in post. Is a... <laughs> It'll be in the, in the episode notes. It'll be in the episode notes. We'll but, find it. Uh, forensic scientists. And the idea was that people will, when they pass away, donate their body to science. If you want to have a very green burial, if you donate your body to science at the body farm, they will study your corpse and the decomposition of your corpse in various different ways. And will also be able to tell from your skeletal structure what possible different things you had, different diseases and things of that nature. Or even habits. Or habits. And that they can... grind your teeth, they'll find stronger, you know, mandibular mm -hmm. muscle attachment points and your teeth will be And they can line that up with your medical history. And this allows them to solve crimes in missing person cases. And And also... also is used archaeologically. Yes. We found this culture and, and we think found them with pouches of some sort of leafy material... And we found that all of them had extremely strong jaws and ground teeth. We're guessing that they chewed whatever this was and was a, a you know a habituative thing. Well, and they've also found that this has allowed them to figure out pathology of different diseases over time. Where it's the, okay, this is a disease or a pathogen that we are dealing with now. Well, it actually has been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, they've used it to find... You know, the more common skeletal issues, so things like scoliosis or you know, spina bifida. But it can also be things where it's, okay, there was an outbreak of whooping cough, so we can see that rib structures may have been different. Or... Um, you, can see in, you can see evidence of syphilis, tuberculosis, and polio in the skeleton. Not now, to mention you know, more physical detriment things like breaking bones. bones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, those repair sites... And depending on age, if you broke a bone when you're older versus when you're younger, they can determine that based on how well it healed. There will almost always be some sign of that bone having been broken, but if it occurs when you're very young and you live to an old age, odds are good it will be very hard to detect. Mm -hmm. But if you broke a bone at 82 and died at 85, it'll be pretty obvious. You know, that, that bone will not heal nearly as well in the older phases of age, particularly because there's not a ton of growth to bones beyond at that point. What we're saying, I'm going to come back around, in that with skeletal structure, is look at the art. Think about how they're built. Think about what that would lend to in their culture, in their society, in their roles, right? What would their, well, what would their tools look like? How would yes. they differ? You know, a bugbear's morning star is going to be a lot different than a human morning star. Mm-hmm. Or a, a gnome morning star. Just in size, but perhaps in shape. In perhaps design. in material. In design. But also think about, you know, another way, and this goes to how you could use these creatures in your game, you know, any of the goblinoids, is that you think about a bugbear being this massive entity, but yeah, if they're lazabouts, maybe from a distance you just see something that looks out of place on the ground. You don't see an eight-foot, you know, hulking, long-limbed creature. You see a lump, and when you get close to it, it leaps up and roars into action. Okay, that's a way different way to look at that. Or if you see silhouettes on a hillside. You see a booth that says free hugs. Yeah, it's hug bears. <laughs> um, but if you see you know, silhouettes on a hillside in the distance, okay, hobgoblins, number one, probably wouldn't be visible. They're going to be below the military crest of the hill. They would never be at the top of a hill when they're illuminated. They'd be behind it for a tactical advantage. You see several stacks of goblins. Now we're a Pateri War stack. <laughs> right. And so it's, it, you know, how would a, a goblin group proceed? Would it be loud and raucous and diversionary as opposed to uh, a swift tactical ambush versus force. completely missing this huge creature in the woods and all of a sudden the back half of your party is gone because they've been silently taken out by a very large creature. Bugbears may be Bigfoot. You know, we haven't brought that up. We never see them. We never they see them. exceptionally large. Yes. And they sleep a lot. They could be Bigfoot. Maybe there's an opportunity. Maybe the heroes are hunting Bigfoot and it turns out it's a bugbear. Or vice versa. Why not have Bigfoot in D&D? We've got Kelpies and Loch Ness Monsters and Will-o'-the-Wisps. Why not other cryptids? Why not Mothman? Why not the Chupacabra? Why not Bigfoot? Band name. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. <laughs> Feels like a ska band name. Well, we had ska earlier, though. Feels like a very ska episode. I don't know mm. why. I have no idea either. 
Because uh, the, the third wave of human hu, of human migration from our from oh, our yeah, that was first episode was, was... Musical history deep cut joke. Yep. That applied to like three people I know. <laughs> Sometimes you do things just for you. Do, do any of them listen to this podcast? Though? Don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> we love we're here for you. We're the content you crave. <laughs> Do you oh. need obscure 80s music history jokes? I'm here for you. <laughs> oh, good grief. But yeah, I think I mean, we've covered everything? I mean, is there anything else you can think of from a biological standpoint of how to incorporate some of that into... Not really. From a, from I mean, a lore perspective, certainly, but in an encounter with these beings, you know, how could you see it going differently taking our, you know, biological tack on it, of these are not just the easy, evil, paint-by-numbers, quick-and-dirty monster manual entry. Ah, challenge rating one quarter, challenge rating one half, challenge rating one, plug-and-play. No, treat them like you would a player. If we want to make them more interesting, right? Yeah, this is and not the, said, the bullet or the owlbear. This is not is the bullet or the owlbear. No, this instinct is... Instinct-driven force of no. nature. As I said, the cultural differences, the societal differences, the lore differences, dig into that to make them more interesting. Pretend that you're going against another DM. So what we're saying is the goblins will ignore, ignore any objective you put in front of them and will be talking to some unrelated NPC, likely an animal, and generally breaking everything around them as hard as they can. Yes. While ignoring as many major plot points, including the players. The goblins should just not care that the players are there and continue building a rocking horse or whatever it was they were up to. Is that not what you're going for? Okay, I said... <laughs> maybe I should have put this a little bit differently. If you're against another DM or another player, not that I'm playing against you specifically, a DM, that you're in my game and being yourself. I'm going to go out on a limb and say there are a lot of player groups that have pointedly ignored everything put in front of them. No, I've been in those player groups. And honestly, if you go with the goblins wanting to avoid unwanted attention. Good work. If there's not some reason to keep them in line, why are they attacking things? Maybe they just happened to attack that group so that they would appear good because the hobgoblin was walking by. And now they just want to go back to goofing off and drinking in the woods. So now the players come along that there's, you know, raiding goblins, and they show up and the goblins are, like, playing dice and hanging out. And they're like, what do you guys need? These are, like, the low-level soldiers that are just trying to get by. This is Dave on the Death Star mm -hmm. cleaning the toilets on deck 47. <laughs> you know, you're on Vader's helmet duty next week, and so, <laughs> you know, which one's worse? I don't know. I love that job. Right? Wow. You are helmet scrubber number six. Do not mess up. One through five died Tuesday Dude. last week. It's not a good week. You know, are these goblins goofing off? Do you find bugbears just asleep in the woods and it's like you show up and maybe they're full. They caught a deer and they just want to lay around. And there's nobody driving them so into action. What so. I, so what I'm saying is, biologically speaking, is you're going to be fighting other humans. Just make their culture different. To make them more interesting. Their motives different. Their society different. Whatever you want. But they're not a dumb monster. It is an easy way out. It's the lazy way out. It's like, if you want a big dumb monster, go hang out with the bullet. Throw a couple owlbears out Throw there. Throw a couple owlbears at it. But if it's like, if you want to make it interesting, actually use the intelligence. And for a real big threat, have that war camp. Have yeah. all three and have them organized. Yeah. It's terrifying. Because you're talking about likely hundreds of enemies. You're going to need to rally some troops and really think about it. You're not just going to kick open the door and just start lighting off fireball. You're going to make angry wolves and the goblins are going to go ballistic. But the hobgoblins are going to spring into action and follow their drills. And the bugbears are probably like, somebody set my, my tunnel on fire, my den on fire. Now I'm angry because I have to put out fires and I have to do something. I have to do two things now? Yeah, i got to do two things. There's probably nothing that makes a bugbear angrier than having to do two things. Okay. One was bad enough. One was an affront, but might have been overlooked. Two things? Now we have a problem. I think that covers it. I think so. I think that is, uh, that's a lot of goblinoid. Yeah. And I think that lot. it's important that we cover that much goblinoid. 
that it needed to look at, yes, these are intelligent creatures. And yeah, there's been some problems in past editions, and we're working on fixing those. You know, we've, we've seen the, the evil term go away. Now let's take away the, it's just a monster. It's just an easy plug and play. Use that background. Use these as a biological entity. If you need a reference, go out and find a culture that you're not as familiar with and fill that in for your intelligent creatures, be it goblinoids or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Leverage that anthropological entity. They have stories. They have art. What do goblins talk about? Goblins have to have jokes. What does a goblin joke sound like? What are their games like? You These know, are the things that make them people, that make them interesting. They have families. They have hobbies. They have pets. Very likely the goblins are not just keeping wolves for fun. No. I mean, yeah, they're dangerous, but these are likely beloved creatures. That's okay. They a bunch of pets that, that humans keep are dangerous. Let's True. be real. I mean, house cats don't seem dangerous, but they are murderous little little devils. If turned loose, house cats are a big problem. Maybe goblins, maybe there's a goblin with a house cat. They've got all these, these wolves and things, but they really care about this kitten they found. That's not an evil creature. There's a group of goblins with a kitten in the woods, and they're playing with it. Okay, heroes, now what are you going to do? Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or you have any suggestions of topics that we should cover in the future, please tweet those at us at, at nat20pod or email them to us at natural20podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you would like any of your adventures in your own D&D games about different creatures that you had fun with, please submit those stories to us, and we will feature them at the beginning of our next podcast in our creature feature. We would like to thank Embers Tide for our intro and outro music. We would like to thank Burnham with three M's for our beautiful profile and banner artwork. We would also like to thank Shadow Dunn for listening to all of the rough drafts of our podcast. He listens to our mistakes, so you don't have to. And, as always, keep rolling a natural 20.